Welcome to the Potter's House Community Church's podcast. Join us weekly as we feature our Sunday sermons. The Potter's House Community Church exists to help people be shaped by God to be followers of Jesus Christ. We hope today's message encourages you as we dive into God's Word. So grab your favorite drink and let's listen to today's sermon. So show me your mysteries, my God. So our concluding conversation now is we've talked about, well, first we talked about the mission of God, which again, to summarize, is to make God's commitment to make himself known that he wants us to know him because he knows in us knowing him, we can have life and life to the full. It's the only way. It's why he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one come to the Father except through me. It's why in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know the one true, you, the one true God and the Son whom you sent. is so that we could know him. And this morning we talked about these different covenants and talked about the story of God all with this underlying desire for God to have a people that would call him their God and to who he could call his children and that he could dwell with and walk with. So after laying all of this foundation, foundation, we finally get to kind of the brass tacks. What is our mission? What, what is our role in this? Where do we take this from here? We know that his mission is to make himself known it's printed through the entire story. What is the mission of the church? Now, some missiologists and theologians have contended that the mission of God and the mission of the church are related but different. And what they usually mean by this is they've defined the mission of God specifically as it relates to our salvation, which is that, that people's sins would be forgiven and that they would be reconciled to God. And now if we defined God's mission simply in that way, we would know that that's not our mission. We can't fulfill that mission. It's not our job to win souls. It's not our job to, to be the saving factor. That's God's job only. And yes, that was his mission in redemption, but we said that the overarching mission that connects creation, redemption, and new creation is him making himself known. So I contend that the mission of the church is actually quite similar to God's mission and that we are called instead of making ourselves known to make him known. So in the same way that God's mission is to make himself known, our mission is to make God known. Pretty simple, right? It's an easy way not to get too caught up because we just know that the only mission that we could care about is the mission that he cares about, which is making himself known known. What I want to do with this conversation this afternoon and try to keep it somewhat brief but lay a good foundation for us understanding what our mission is, is I want to look at the Great Commissions. And you're like, Great Commissions. I've heard of the Great Commission, but maybe not the plural Great Commissions. How many Gospels are there? Do you guys know? Well, 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 there's one true gospel, yes. How many, how many authors authored something that we refer to colloquially as the gospels at the beginning of the New Testament? The answer is right. It is one and it is four. That's fair. But there's four, right? This room is way too smart for me this afternoon. There are four gospels. I contend that there are four great commissions. 
There are four commissioning moments in each of the four gospel writers' treaties and offerings to us to understand who God is and therefore know how to walk with him. And so what I want us to do is I want us to lay a foundation here of what being commissioned looks like as his church. What is our mission? What will shape what we do as mission? All put together, we're going to talk about what it means to be sent with a gospel message to bear witness and make disciples. So like we've been doing all weekend long, we're going to be jumping between different scriptures, but they're all going to be in the gospels. Let's begin with this idea that we are sent. So if our job is to make God known, the degree to which I can make God known if I am only standing here in this space will be only those that are around me. But we know that we are called to go, to, set, to be sent. And so in John chapter 20, verses 21, we get John's version, or at least what I call, John's version of the Great Commission. So this is after the resurrection, after Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. He's now appearing to the disciples in verse 19. He says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And in verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. But we see here, Jesus has not only already died, He's resurrected. He's now with his disciples. So similar kind of story that we're going to get to from Matthew, which is the one that we know the most as a great commission. But here in John's telling, he says to them, peace be with you as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Within the church, there are two realities coming together that are going to be held in tension. One is that here in this church, here in the body of Christ, we are called by Jesus to come, all who are weary and heavy laden. We are called to, to walk with one another and bear with one another, imparting God's wisdom, imparting God's peace and love onto one another, and so creating a community of care, so creating a community of love. All those one another's that we get throughout the New Testament, love one another, uphold one another, bear with one another, all these things, forgive one another. They should be evident as we do life as a body, as a church, because in making him known to one another, we will care for one another. But then there's that, that tension of not only focusing internally and loving one another and, and creating a space where we're comfortable being in a, a loving and nurturing place where anybody can come and feel welcome, we are also trying to expand and not in like a McDonald's franchise kind of way, but in a way that we are what? Following our mission. Living in such a way to make him known. And so God orients his church. He orients us outward. And as much as we also care inwardly, we're also called 
to go, to spread, to send, to pray, to walk with others so as to make God known. But if you look at this particular passage, Jesus said to them, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. And this is one of those recurring themes throughout all of John's gospel, was Jesus following the will of God, following the will of the Father, and making himself as God, the Trinity, known. And so in the same way that the Father is ascending God and has sent Jesus, and therefore a missionary God with a mission to make himself known, he has thus commissioned us. And what's amazing here is that he, he goes on to say, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he did what? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now we know that the ultimate coming of the Spirit is, is laid out for us in Acts, right? At Pentecost. But here Jesus is saying, I am sending you, but I'm not sending you alone. I'm sending you with my spirit. Again, we're going to see this kind of play out a couple of times in these commissions. There's going to be some recurring themes. But here Jesus is telling us that in light of, our mission, of God's mission to make himself known, God has set a people that he is sending. You, most of you guys were here this morning. I don't think anybody came in that wasn't here this morning. And in Abraham, in Genesis 12, he's calling Abraham and he's saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a name. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. But he also promised him a land. And he's calling Abraham to go, to go to this land, to trust me, to know that I'm going to go with you. And so too, we as his people are a sent people. There are multiple ways in which we do that in light of mission, as a church, we can do that as we serve the community around us. We can do that by inviting friends into this space. That is a wholly appropriate way. I would say not the only way, because we can also go ourselves and serve and be sent and live among the world around us. But we need to recognize, in light of God's mission, in light of who we are, that we are called to be sent, to go to not stay idly by, but to take steps of faith and obedience. But what are we sent with? Well, we're sent with a gospel message. Mark, similarly after the resurrection, gives his great commission. And in my Bible translation, I don't know if it's in the years as well, but this section at the end of Mark chapter 16 is also called the great commission. But he says this, the screen will have one verse and I'll read some of the context. Verse 14, afterward he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. To be fair, guys, you're walking with Jesus, you're following Jesus, he ends up dying on the cross and you're downtrodden, you're full of despair, you're scared of the Jews, you're locking yourself away. I'm probably, if I'm putting myself in their shoes, I'm probably getting a rebuke from Jesus too. I'm just being honest, I, I probably am. But then Jesus says this, and he said to them, go into all the world 
and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus is saying to go and do what at the beginning of this passage? Go and preach the gospel. And herein lies one of those fundamental questions that people who study missions get asked a lot. What constitutes mission? Is it simply just when we get to the point of proclaiming Jesus that it becomes mission? Is it just evangelism in the strictest sense of proclaiming the gospel? Or can mission be something broader than that? We know if we just focus on issues related to social welfare, some perhaps even will call social justice, but caring for the poor, caring for the downtrodden, the burdened, walking with them, providing for them, apart from the gospel, does that move the needle towards knowing God? Or does it always have to get to the point of proclamation for it to be considered mission? Well, to get into that, we need to define some terms. That's what we've kind of been doing all weekend. There is a difference between mission and missions. Here's the difference, okay, guys? The mission, as we've been defining it all weekend long, is our purpose. And our purpose is ultimately to what? To make God known. When we refer to things as missions, we're moving from purpose to our activity. So the missions of the church will look like the activity. It's us putting our hands to the plow in terms of work of missions. But those missions are always done under the guise, under the guideline of mission, which is our purpose. My contention today is that the church as a whole, looking holistically into the world's job is to make him known. I do think that we have a responsibility to make him known in such a clear and compelling way that the only way they could respond is to acknowledge Jesus as Lord or deny him as the Bible tells us. Those that won't be saved will be condemned but to present Jesus as he presented himself, as sent from the Father, as, as died on the cross for our sins, as rose again. And yes, we proclaim it with a gospel message, but we also do it by living out a life that shows the world that what Jesus has taught us of knowing him will actually make a difference. So perhaps it's a cop-out. Some have accused me this, of this before, but the answer absolutely does have to be both. We do have to care for the poor. We do have to provide for physical needs. And we have to proclaim the gospel. We don't have to feel like we have to do everything all at once. But I do believe that we as a church as a whole have a responsibility to live it out and to proclaim it. In this particular great commission, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. The euangelion is the Greek word means good news. And it is good news. 
good news that we no longer have to strive to fix ourselves or to fix others or the world around us, but rather that God has broke into our cycle of unbelief so that we can truly live. And it's this gospel message, it's this euangelion that powers us. Because apart from the gospel message, apart from him accomplishing the task on our behalf, it becomes about us again. I told you guys that last night anyways, that when I first heard the gospel, I was 17 years old. It was a street hockey ministry. And it was a youth pastor in Cochrane who's now the pastor of the Alliance Church in Vernon right now. His name's Jason. And I told you guys that when he shared the gospel with me the first time that I walked away and said, hey, that's great, but I just want to see you at hockey. I don't, I don't know what to do with this. That's great. Thanks for sharing the gospel with me. I'm just going to go and play hockey. See you next week. I don't know. Um, polite. That's a polite kid. But I didn't know what to do with this. So I walked away. It was literally the next day that I, that I responded to what I had heard from him. It was a Thursday at the start of October in 2001 in my grade 12 year of high school. And so, yes, I did respond to it, but at first, I'm sure if I'm sitting in Jason's shoes, and by the way, I've sat in his shoes before where I've proclaimed the gospel clearly with passion and conviction and had somebody look at me and go, yeah, no thanks. So I know what he was thinking, and we've talked since, and so I definitely know what he was thinking as he told me, but it's like, man, did I, did I mess that up? Maybe I did it too soon. Maybe I showed the gospel just too early, or maybe I should have waited a little bit longer. Maybe I should have used a different tract. Or maybe instead of doing it here at a coffee shop, I should have just done it a bit more organically at the hockey thing. Or maybe I should have X, Y, or Z. I've done that. Oh man, I just made a mess of that gospel presentation. But what Mark is telling us here is yes, this is an explicit command to go with the gospel message, but that gospel message reminds us that it isn't about how articulate I am, how well refined my argument may or may not be, because we ultimately know that people are not going to see God the way that God wants them to see unless God moves in their lives. Now he calls us which is part of our mission as a church. He, he, for whatever reason, has, from the very beginning, used people because he wants us to know him and to walk with him and do life with him. He has used people to accomplish his task. It was Abraham, it was Isaac, it was Jacob. It was Joseph, it was David, it was Jeremiah, it was Isaiah. Certainly it was Jesus. It was Peter, it was Paul, it was Lydia. Aquila and Priscilla, it was John. And so too now, some 2,000 years after Jesus, it's you and it's me. But it's only done under his power and for his purpose or for his glory. And so we are called and sent as the Father has sent Jesus. So Jesus is sending us to proclaim a gospel message which is about him and not about us. I told you guys about Pat, I think, earlier, and how he came to know the Lord, and I kind of apologized to him. You guys remember that story? I apologized that I kind of prayed somewhat unsuspectingly, but still hopefully that God would kind of like mess up his life a little bit. 
Um, before that happened, um, I had started a book club. I know, I don't know many guys that start book clubs, but I had a bunch of guy friends that read a lot and I said, hey, we're going to read some books. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And we'll eat steak and eat manly food and still read books. Um, <laughs> and so we were reading all sorts of things from like economics to history to f- all sorts of weird things, literature. Um, and the first book we read was called The Death of Europe. It was about immigration. And uh, it was one of the ones that I let Pat pick and his friend Steve pick. And I'd invited another friend to come along with me um, to be a part of this book club. And so they picked this and we talked about immigration. We talked about refugees. And they kept on asking Kelly, like, what, is, what does Jesus have to say about refugees? Now, was, the context was Europe, and so a boat's coming across the Mediterranean. The boat's here on the shore of Greece or on the shore of Italy or in Turkey or wherever the case may be, Spain. And it's full of these young children, and they're starving, and they're thirsty because they've just crossed the ocean across the sea. Like, what does Jesus say about that? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, well, I think Jesus loves them, and he cares for them, and I don't know necessarily what Jesus has to say about immigration policy, but I know that he loves those children, and so I know for me it's going to be hard for me to kick that boat back out into the ocean, no matter what my immigration policy is. And so I'm kind of conflicted, but I'm sharing what I think the good news might be in this particular case of how God might love these people. We end that conversation, and we finish our steaks and our potatoes, and and Pat and Steve were like, man, this was a lot of fun. We need to do this again. I said, all right, let's do it again. They're like, well, we picked this book. Why don't you Christians, you pick the next book. I said, okay, we'll pick the next book. And so I turned to Glenn and said, oh, we'll talk about it later. We'll let you guys know. And we eventually settled on a book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. If you haven't read it, it's a great book. You guys heard of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis? I think The Reason for God is kind of a more of a modern day Mere Christianity. Um, and so we read this book and I remember we got the group together and there's even more this time, a realtor of ours joined in who didn't know Jesus as well as a taxi cab driver and one other person that came, he worked at uh, a concrete factory and they all didn't know Jesus, just me and Glenn, but we're reading this Jesus book. And so I start off the conversation with them by going, and these guys are, we all have some of a relationship, largely through hockey, with these guys. And so um, there's already some level of trust already built here. But I'm still somewhat peculiar in their minds because I'm a pastor that plays hockey. That's weird first off. But I'm their friend and do things differently than them. So that's also peculiar. But I also want to be upfront with them about the gospel and about my intentions and my hope. And so I just come out and I'm very forward with them. I said, hey, we're about to read this book. And yes, it talks a lot about Jesus. And you guys have already read it. So you guys have probably a lot of questions. I'm going to get something on the table right off the bat. My desire is for everyone in this room to know Jesus. Because, you know, sometimes people are like, well, your only end is for, you know, people to know Jesus. And I'm like, well, yeah, that, that is my desire. I'm, I'm, I'll say it right now. I want you to know Jesus. I'm not going to stand here and shove it down your throat. But as we go through this book, I'm going to share what it is that I've learned, what it is I'm seeing in this. I'm going to answer your questions. My hope is that, yes, you will believe in Jesus. But I've learned long ago that I can't convince you to believe in Jesus. I can't rationalize my way into your brain and make you believe. 
All that I can do is take this gospel message and share it with you. And again, I'm not going to shove it down your throat, but I'm going to make sure that you know it. What you do with it, I, 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 I can't make a difference there. All I can do is take this gospel message that God has given me and do my best in the power of the spirit that was breathed into us to make him known to you. This is the gospel message. It's, it's not about us or our abilities to accomplish something for the mission. It's about us to be faithful and obedient in doing our best to portray Jesus as well as we can and as accurately as I can so that the spirit may move and thus bring others to him. But we are sent with this gospel message, this gospel message being the power. To what? To bear witness. I told you as in the four gospel writers, and I wasn't lying, but we are in Acts. Chapter one, verse eight. And you're like, wait, you said the four gospels. Why are we in Acts? Well, really, biblical scholars see Luke's gospel and Acts as two parts of the same thing. Because Luke, the physician, wrote both of them. So you have the Jesus life, death, resurrection, and then you have the Pentecost and the beginning of the church. And this is Luke's entire writing. And so I'm just going to say it's the one big gospel of Luke, and so Acts 1.8 is actually Luke. <laughs> Sounds reasonable, right? Go along with it. <laughs> so the start of Acts we see that there's this promise to the disciples. Jesus said, stick around. So Jesus is resurrected. He walked with the disciples, taught the disciples a little bit more. And then what did he do? He ascended, right? But he tells them here at the beginning of Acts to stick around because I, I have something coming. He told them the same thing in John in the upper room. This helper is going to come. And so the helper will come, especially in Acts 2. But in the ascension... Verse 6, chapter 1 and following. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. What's a witness do? What's the context that we best understand witness? Seeing something. Usually it's like court of law, right? Like there's a witness who testifies about what they saw, heard, experienced, right? So yeah, this is our understanding of witness. And so when Jesus tells them before his ascension that I will make you witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth, what are they to be a witness about? What are they to testify of? Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They're to testify about this gospel message so as to, to proclaim the gospel message, Right? So the word here, witness, in Acts 1.8, if we were to look 
at the Greek, it's actually this word martyrio, which we get another word for martyr. Martyr. Which we are told is the ultimate form of witness to lay down one's life for this. And so we get this word to be called to be a witness. See, a witness is taking not only the testimony and the proclamation of the words of Jesus' gospel, that he died, he rose, and we now have salvation, and he has conquered death so that we can live. But it is also bearing testimony in the way that we live our lives. So as to be in accordance with what God has said and what God has done in us. Leslie Newbigin is one of those like rock star missiologists that I don't expect any of you guys to know of, but for guys like me, Newbigin's kind of like that. He's that rock star. He says, The church is sent, therefore, not only to proclaim the kingdom, but to bear in its own life the presence of the kingdom. That when we bear witness, yes, we proclaim the gospel as just that, the gospel, but we also bear in our own life and in the life of the church the presence of the kingdom. The way that I like to describe this to my church is, is that the church ought to be that theatrical preview that entices people to go see the movie. It's not the kingdom that God's going to make in the new heavens and the new earth, because we know that, because our church is broken. We still argue with one another. We get upset over the color of the paint or the carpet or we get upset over some nuances of theology or we just don't like each other. I'm being honest, it's personality conflicts. And yet, God is calling us to surrender those things and work through them so that we could be an essence of what God plans to do that we may be a kingdom alternative here in this world that lives out under the gospel power that yes, we are broken. And so acknowledging that we're broken and not being full on hypocrites, but just trying to live out that brokenness under his kingdom, but that we would be in essence, a picture of what God plans to do. That we would be that credible alternative, which is what Paul Hebert, another one of those missiologist rock stars, says that it is important that Christians provide a credible alternative to the existing paradigms of the world. That we would look different. That we would look distinct. That what motivates us would be different. The best way that I think about this is how we are called to mourn the loss of a loved one. The scriptures teach us that, that we're not to mourn like the world mourns. Why? Because we know that life doesn't end here. We have a purpose that exists beyond just this physical life. We have an existence that will carry on. And so in mourning, in one aspect of our living, yes, death will come. Death to friends and to loved ones, death to yourself. But even in that mourning, our mourning should look different. But it's not limited just to our mourning. It's limited to every aspect that our life touches. The motivation for why we we seek the approval of our bosses. Not to build up our own name, but to point others towards Jesus. 
how we pursue friendship, how we treat a janitor when we walk into a building, how we treat one another, how we love one another should provide a credible alternative and thus bear witness to a world that exists in very different paradigms, very different ways. Hebrew would go on to say, it is not only the message we preach, but the lives we live that draw people to the gospel. Told you about Pat, the book club, and Steve was the second guy in that book club. Steve, again, is a guy I've known all my life. Um, we weren't necessarily friends in high school. He was way off the rails. I wasn't a Christian most of high school either, but he was way off the rails. But I remember him when we were young because my mom used to have a day home and he was in our day home. But this, this friend of mine, Steve, I hadn't seen him in quite a few years, maybe seven years ago now. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And I'm sitting in a Donair shop in Cochrane. I'm actually sitting with Glenn, who I'd go on to do the book club with. And I see Steve, and Steve walks in to get a Donair, ostensibly, I guess. And he's, he's walking like this. He's about as, about as tall as me, maybe a little bit shorter, but he's, he's like bent over 90 degrees. And he's, he's walking in. And he hasn't seen me yet, but I'm just going to sit there. Oh, that's, uh, that's probably Steve, yeah. Well, I wonder what's going on with his back. That's interesting. I'm just thinking these thoughts, right? He gets his food, and he walks around. And as he kind of walks around, he, he, he sees me. And we haven't seen each other in a while. And so, you know, he walks over to me, and he's... He doesn't straighten himself up when he gets to me. He's literally kind of bent over like this and like, hey, Steve, how, how's it going? You, you all right? And he's like, no, no, I got this back thing and just can't seem to get it fixed. Um, talked to the surgeons here in Calgary and it, it's going to be a couple of years. Like they just, because I'm not in a lot of pain or whatever, this or that, it's just not going to happen. And so what he ends up doing is he ends up going to BC, coming here to Vancouver to get a private surgery. I'm like, okay, well, when's that? He said, well, that's in a few months. It's in August. I said, oh, okay, wow. I oh, mean, I don't know what this may mean to you, but I mean, I'll be praying for you. I hope that, hope that, that it goes well and that your back is okay and that, uh, that hopefully you get through this all right. Like, I don't know what else to say, right? Like, I'll, just, I'll pray for you and you can take that or leave it. And, and he's like, thanks, man. Yeah. And I was like, so what, what, that, what day is it actually? And he, t- he tells me it's like August 21st or something. He's like, okay. He goes on his way and me and Glenn finish our meal. And, and I don't see Steve again for a few months. August has come and getting ready for the new year. September is about to start. And look at my phone. It's August 22nd. And like one of those spirit moments, right? Like, oh, Steve just had his surgery. Oh, it was yesterday though. Oh man, I'm just going to shoot him a text message. So I shot him a text message. Hey man, no, you just had the surgery yesterday. Um, I was praying, praying for you today. Hope the recovery is going well. Um, shoot me a message whenever you get a chance. Love to hear how it went. Didn't hear from him. A um, couple weeks, right? Months later, I, I see him about and he's walking up straight and he's tall again and seems well and is like, how'd the recovery go? He said, it went great. And we kind of strike up a little bit of a friendship going on and saw each other a bit more often. Eventually he'd come to the book club and eventually, like Pat, he would give his life to Christ and he would be baptized at Tapestry and um, at Tapestry we share a testimony when he's bap- when you're getting baptized and he hadn't 
told me this part of what he was going to share, but he's in the baptistry, and he's sharing, and he said, one of the biggest things that led me to this point was my back surgery. I'm like, that makes sense. You know, one of those crisis moments, right? But he's like, it wasn't just the back surgery, it was after the back surgery. He said, out of all of my friends, out of all of my family, everyone that I know, only two people texted me after my surgery to see how it went. Only two. And he said, both of those guys were Christians. And I said to myself in that moment, I need to learn more about what it is that makes them want to text me afterwards. Now, it took a couple years after that. And at that point, I hadn't proclaimed the gospel. But I had begun to make God known to him in such a way that it bore witness to what it is that God had done in my life. Now, if you're hearing that story and you're thinking that's me talking about me, it's not. It's me saying that God can use even small text messages as a missional act towards drawing people to himself. But only when we realize that that our mission is, yes, proclaiming the gospel, but it's also living out the gospel. And all that we do. Timothy Keller says, put positively, the gospel transforms our heart, our thinking, changes our approaches to everything when the gospel is expounded and applied in its fullness in any church. And in so, that church will look unique. People will find in it an attractive, electrifying balance he goes on to say, of moral conviction and of compassion, but, but there'll be something about it that will draw people to. There will still be some that will be turned off. We can't control that. But when we live out the effects of the gospel in our lives collectively, and we bear witness as a community together, exhibiting the fruits of the spirit and not the fruits of the world, living out what it means, that it will be an aroma that is not only pleasing to God, but that will be attractive to others. And in so doing, we have an opportunity to proclaim that gospel to them. Again, not about us, but about proclaiming him. So we are sent with the gospel message to bear witness. And then we get to, well, the familiar one, Matthew 28. Again, after the resurrection, the commissioning of his disciples. Verse 16 starts with, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain on which Jesus had directed them, and they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, there's aspects of all the stuff that we've talked about thus far in this. The being sent. It's with this gospel message to make to baptize people and make disciples, to bear witness. But it's that make disciples that I want to focus on for a moment. It's at the heart of what we are called to do as a church. Sometimes I think, though, we take discipleship and we distill it down to just one aspect of a multifaceted thing. 
we can have a tendency to make discipleship about imparting knowledge to one another. And in imparting knowledge, we miss the fact that we are called to make him known. So if our imparting knowledge about God ultimately does lead to making him known, then yes, amen. But it's also this idea that in discipleship, it's a life-on-life, holistic modeling of what it looks like to be transformed by the gospel. Now, we can't be transformed without knowing about Jesus, knowing about God, but the true invitation is not to know about God, but to know God. And so as we make disciples, he lays it out for us. He says we go, which is part of that sending, to make disciples of who? Of all nations, everyone. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's that Trinity thing that I told you to ask Wayne about later. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Helping them know what it is that I, Jesus speaking, have taught you to the disciples. And my favorite part is the end. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. A part we sometimes forget in our rush to make it about us and what we're doing for God. We are reminded that he is going with us. He is empowering us to make these disciples. Let me ask you this, my friend Pat, my friend Steve, when did I start discipling them? Was it when... They said yes to Jesus, and I said, hey, man, I'm going to teach you a little bit about what baptism means, and that way you can get baptized. Because that that's discipleship. That's teaching them what God has commanded. It's walking with them. But I guess the question I'm asking is, discipleship, does it only begin after someone becomes a believer? My worry is that sometimes we see evangelism as pre-Christ, and discipleship is post-Christ. Evangelism is what we need to do to lead them to the point of the cross, this inflection point, then they make a decision, and then we start this discipleship. But I think we get throughout this entire Great Commission talk, what we get through the mission of the church is that the reality is, is that not only do non-believers need the gospel, the message of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, but so too does everybody on the other side of the cross. We need to evangelize one another, not to the point of being saved again, but to the point of being reminded how we were saved. Because we too easily default back to our old way of either thinking that we need to earn the salvation again, or what I had to learn the hard way, I was always okay with the fact that I knew I didn't earn my salvation, but I had to get to the point where I didn't have to merit my salvation either. As if like my salvation was on a layaway plan from Kmart back in the day. Like, okay, I've been saved and now I got to pay it off piece by piece throughout the rest of my life to show Jesus that it was a good choice to save me. I was always okay that I couldn't earn it. But I did fall into the trap that I needed to merit it. But I need the gospel on this side of the cross just as much as my friends on the other side of the cross. Maybe not just as much, but need the gospel the same. 
but discipleship, of teaching people what it means to follow Jesus, of modeling what it means to follow Jesus. That happens, yes, after the cross. Yes, absolutely in our church, but it also happens before. It happens with those text messages to Steve. It happens with those conversations with Pat as we drove from Calgary to Victoria back in the day. Discipleship happens the minute that we start rubbing our life up against somebody that doesn't know Jesus. We begin to model for them what the kingdom looks like here on earth. So the mission of God is to make himself known. The story of God points us to God, points us to the Son, points us to the Spirit, and allows us to understand our identity as being sent with a gospel message to bear witness and to make disciples. For me, the way that this has played out practically in our church, is that about seven years ago, as we were replanting tapestry, from a church in Northwest Calgary to a church in Cocker with about 20 people. You guys know a little bit about replanting here in Potter's House. It's challenging, it's hard, it's difficult, but you get to see God move in some really amazing ways. And I think that's been true here as well as it's been in Tapestry. But we decided to kind of crystallize what our, our mission statement was gonna be as a church. God's mission is to make himself known. How do we crystallize that down into our mission statement as a church? And so we came up with this. We borrowed it from a, from a friend of ours that was in North Carolina, tweaked it a little bit, but largely got the idea from him. So I can't take too much credit for it, but it encapsulated everything that we wanted it to. And it was that every man, woman, and child would have multiple or repeated opportunities to hear, see, and respond to the gospel. Again, every man, woman, and child having repeated opportunities to hear, see, and respond to the gospel. If you're like, maybe I've seen that before, I think our convention has adopted that as our national convention's vision about a year or two ago. Again, it wasn't from us, it was from somebody else, but it was kind of, we're, we're in this together now. But I'm going to tell you guys why I like this, kind of as the conclusion to our GROW conference hopefully as, as an inspiration, uh, a coalescing, a crystallizing of everything that we've heard this weekend, why I like this, why this is the foundation for mission, for me and for our church. One, every man, woman, and child. Who does that include? Who does that exclude? No one. Everyone. It includes everyone. Every man, every woman, every child. What is it doing? Well, it's providing multiple or repeated opportunities to what? To hear, see, and respond to the gospel. Do you guys remember how many days it took for me to respond to the gospel? It wasn't immediate, but do you guys remember how many days? One day. Heard it on a Wednesday, responded on a Thursday. Remember going home, telling my parents. My parents were like, you have lost your ever-loving mind. We fought bitterly. My mom did not like what was happening at all. And we began to fight. And so, I was like, I don't know what to do with all this. Towards the end of that year, end of grade 12, my brothers were wrapping up hockey and my mom 
was kind of fed up with fighting with me too, and so she laid out an ultimatum for me. About six months after I became a believer, she said, so long as you live in this house, you don't go back to church unless I'm convinced that what you're saying is true by going to your church for four weeks. She said, I'll go to your church. I'll do it for four weeks. But you have those four weeks to convince me. And it wasn't faith, it was teenage angst that took her up on this ultimatum. I promise you that there is zero faith in it at all. It was just me being a stubborn teenage boy. But I said, deal, fine, great, grand, wonderful. But I said, if you go, you gotta do the whole meal deal. You gotta go to Sunday school and you have to go to the church service. And she said, fine. You guys wanna guess how many weeks it took my mom before she made a profession of faith? One week. Heard the gospel Sunday morning, got invited out to coffee by a lady named Kathy to Tim Hortons on Monday. She gave her life in that Tim Hortons on Monday. But it had taken about six months at this point to get there. My dad thought, now me and my mom have lost our ever-loving minds. <laughs> Fast forward some 10-odd years, and my parents will eventually be divorced, and family's a little bit shaken up and broken. Um, my dad gets cancer, and it's through a cancer diagnosis that my dad does eventually give his life to the Lord. But it had taken him 10 years, and how many times people praying? How many times people sharing the gospel with him? So when I say every man, woman, and child, meaning everybody, having repeated opportunities, what I mean is I don't know if my sharing the gospel is going to result in immediate fruit, kind of like it did for me. I don't know if it's going to have fruit in the way that it resulted for my mom, six months. I don't know if it's going to have fruit like the way it did with my dad, almost a decade and on his deathbed before he makes a profession. And I don't know if it's going to have the fruit that, that my friend Ryan, who still continues to reject Jesus today, I don't know, but I have been called to give as many opportunities as possible to as many people as possible, and not just me, us as a church, for people to what? To hear, see, and respond to the gospel. Hear it? Yes, the proclamation of it. See it? Yes, it being born out in our lives and respond to it. To decide whether or not this Jesus is to be found wanting or not. But to make a decision either to reject or to accept. And what are they accepting or rejecting? Not me as the messenger, not our church and all of its programs and all of its mission and all of its stuff. It's not what they're rejecting or accepting, but they're accepting or rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our mission as a church is to provide as many opportunities to as many people as possible to know the one true God and the Son whom he sent. This is our mission. This is how I've come to define it for our church and for our network so that we can align ourselves and our activities in such a way that we could see every man, woman, child have these opportunities. We can't save them. We don't even plant churches. All we do is this. And we let God do the rest. And so it's become a rubric for us. So it's become a value for us to live this out. And the crazy thing is it changes the way that we see mission. Because if it's every man, woman, child, can you do that mission just as Potter's House? Even if we just said every man, woman, child in West Kelowna, could you as Potter's House accomplish that? 
No, we'd, we'd have to do it collaboratively with other churches that, that adhere to the same Jesus that we talk about. You guys are already doing that on Tuesday night by letting your youth hang out together. That's collaborating. If it's every man, woman, child having multiple opportunities, would you take the resources, the time, the energy, the finances that you have as a church, and would you make it just your own for your own purposes? Or would you release and mobilize those things to empower others to speak into people's lives? My contention is that you would release what you have so as to be able to see as many people as possible. Hear the gospel as many times as possible. So as to see Jesus as he truly is. What is the mission of God? It's to make himself known. The story of God points to that as well as to who we are. And our mission as a church is yes, defined to some degree by our missions, our activity, but those activities should be limited by our mission, which is to make him known for all people in West Kelowna, all people along this Okanagan Valley. God began in creation by wanting to make himself known The scriptures tell us that he will ultimately make himself known. We are told that every knee will bow. One way or the other, he's coming back. Our job between now and then is to provide as many opportunities as possible to as many people as possible to hear, see, and respond to the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, it is admittedly beyond us to even begin to dream or imagine what every man, woman, child in the world, let alone here even in West Kelowna, looks like to have these multiple repeated opportunities, Lord, to hear, see, and respond to your good news, which is the very reason we're coming to you in prayer. It's the very reason we come to you because you are the only one who can do it. Lord, if there are things in our lives individually, Lord, would you refine those things that need to be refined? Would you allow others in this room as a church, would you allow their pastors and their leaders, would you allow the word of God and the spirit of God to speak truth into their lives in such a way that they would would be reconnected to this gospel, to this truth, to this power that you've given us inside of us? But as a church, you begin to crystallize where it is that you're leading Potter's House to collaborate and to mobilize and to multiply and to transform. Lord, all that we seek and all that we ask is beyond ourselves, Lord. It's beyond our ability which is great because you are more than capable. And so now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. All of God's people said, amen. Amen. 
Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and share with others. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at www.potterschurch.ca or you can connect with us also on social media. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of our weekly sermon series. We hope that you have such an amazing rest of your day. Don't you feel yourself.